Welcome to all those that are hungry and thirsty, that have a heart open to hear this message. Those that are hungry for reality, which only can satisfy the core of your being. My name's David Thompson from the Fraser Valley in British Columbia. For those that are new, I will speak a message that I will seek to speak out of the Spirit of God. The Word of God says, if any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. And so I will seek to minister to you as an individual who in God's foreknowledge has come to hear this message as well as those corporately in the body of Christ, what at this very time and hour God would be seeking to say from his word. As such, I do seek for God's direction in leading to a particular chapter and spend approximately a half an hour on the chapter in meditation as well as making notes. And then immediately after I preach, I don't know what I'm going to share today. This is a very... Uh, small chapter. It would seem like a kind of chapter that there's not much to share from, but I am trusting the Holy Spirit to minister what he would seek to say. Today I received Psalms 145, and so first of all I will read Psalms 145. <clears throat> David's psalm of praise. I will extol thee, my God, O King, and I will bless thy name forever and ever. Every day will I bless thee. I will bless thy name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall praise thy works to another and shall declare thy mighty acts. I will speak of the glorious honor of thy majesty and of thy wondrous works, and men shall speak of the might of thy terrible acts, and I will declare thy greatness. They shall abundantly utter the memory of thy great goodness and shall sing of thy righteousness. The Lord is gracious and full of compassion, slow to anger and of great mercy. The Lord is good to all and his tender mercies are over all his works. All thy works shall praise thee, O Lord, and thy saints shall bless thee. They shall speak of the glory of thy kingdom and talk of thy power to make known to the sons of men his mighty acts and the glorious majesty of his kingdom. Thy kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and thy dominion endureth throughout all generations. The Lord upholdeth all that fall and raiseth up all those that be bowed down. The eyes of all wait upon thee, and thou givest them their meat in due season. Thou openest thine hand and satisfiest the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and holy in all his works. The Lord is nigh unto all them that call upon him, to all that call upon him in truth. He will fulfill the desire of them that fear him. <clears throat> Excuse me, I do have a little bit of a cold left over, so pardon my voice throughout this message in that regards. He also will hear their cry and will save them. Let me repeat that verse. He will fulfill the desire of them that fear him. He also will hear their cry and will save them. The Lord preserveth all them that love him, but all the wicked will he destroy. My mouth shall speak the praise of the Lord, and let all flesh bless his holy name for ever and ever. 
pardon me, I am just going to take a drink of water before I begin to share what the Holy Spirit would say. This passage of Scripture is very obviously a passage, as often the Psalms are, of expressing worship to God. In fact, all the Psalms are basically that, but some passages have more of a strong expression of worship towards God than others. And in this particular Psalm, there are many words that stand out in the process of worshiping God. In verses 1 to 9, we see particularly various words that are used. Worship unto God, praising, extolling, blessing, declaring, speaking, and singing. This is blessing, praising, and declaring the greatness of God. Speaking of God's majesty and wondrous works out of the knowledge that God is a God of judgment that is slow to anger and of great mercy. That's what's basically seen, and I summed up as my first point from verses 1 to 9. I feel the most important word we need to look at first in this passage is the word praise. And if we look at the meaning of this word in the original, the word praise is the word halal, Its first meaning has the understanding of being clear in the sense of making a color clearly distinct or a sound clearly distinct. The second meaning that's out of this meaning is the understanding of to shine. In other words, something becomes very evident compared to all things that would be around it, so that those things that are around it become a mere background of insignificance. The other understanding and praise that's built upon that is to make a show, to boast. In fact, it also has the understanding to make a show and boast to the extent that it would seem that one is clamorously foolish. It means to rave to celebrate. This is what you will find if you look up the meaning of the word praise. Now, if you go to the ancient symbolic letter meanings of the Hebrew language that goes back to 2000 BC, where the letters were symbol pictures, you have, first of all, the picture of a man with his hands raised up as if to uh, show forth praise. That's the first letter. And the next is the staff of a shepherd that's used to hook the sheep, because it's a staff with a hook, or to guide the sheep in a particular direction. So this pictograph is a picture of a man with his arms raised looking at a great sight. And the staff is a shepherd's staff representing the idea of pointing toward something. In other words, to move sheep toward a particular direction. So combined, the original meaning of praise is a looking toward something. This is not just a looking with one's eyes, but a looking in the sense of expressing what one sees. Such a looking toward a light in the distance. The stars have always been used to guide the travel or the shepherd to find his home or his destination. And so it is that when we open the eyes of our heart in worship towards God, we are also guided into a greater relationship with God, a greater identity with God, a deeper communion with God. But it involves entering in to this relationship and worship where we praise God. There are various words used in these first nine verses. One of the other words that's used is extol, which means to praise highly. 
It's the Hebrew word rum, rum, to be high, high actively, to raise or raise, has the idea of raising. And so King David says there in verse one, I will extol thee, O God. I will raise you, O God, O King. But then he also uses the word bless. And that's an important word to understand in worship as well. Bless. Baruch. Baruch, pardon me. The first understanding in the original Hebrew of the word Baruch is to kneel. This is to kneel, and I'll explain further what that word means in relation to blessing God as I go on to explain this word, bless. It has, by implication, the understanding of kneeling towards God in order to bless God. It's an act of adoration. It's an act of worship. That's the implication that comes out of the word to kneel in this word, bless. It's to bless someone else as well as a benefit. And of course, the opposite meaning would be to curse. But in the original ancient pictograph Hebrew from 2000 BC to 1500 BC, it is the picture first of the blueprint of what a tent would look like from top view. And then the picture of the head of a man and then the picture of a hand. It means in this symbolic word is the meaning kneel, the bending of the knee to drink from a pond, the bending of the knee to present a gift. So the picture of the tent has the understanding of something coming out of our abode then the next picture, the picture of a man, of the acknowledgement of authority. And the next picture, the picture of a hand to receive something of the recipient. So out of our heart, out of our being, there needs to become the acknowledgement of ultimate headship of this universe. And to have such an acknowledgement from the inner depths of our abode, of the abode of our heart, of that headship, that it would be received as a blessing from us by God. And it's the picture of those two things in the word bless. To bend the knee, to kneel in homage or to drink water, and of course, the extension of such a meaning is the idea of presenting a gift or giving honor to another. There's various shades of this original ancient script meaning of this Hebrew word. I've told you what the three letters are. There is additional letters that are used. For example, the understanding of kneeling as opposed to kneel, doesn't start with the picture of a tent which represents our abode, but starts with the picture of an ox, which has the understanding of submission of, and then the tent, our abode, the submission of our abode. And then taking that submission of our abode, the next third symbol is again, the head acknowledging the ultimate authority of God, in such a way that it is received by God as what was in our heart to give to God in order to bless God. So that is the thorough understanding in the original meaning of the word bless. And so King David says here, I will extol thee, my God, O King, and I will bless Thy name forever and ever. It is the, what is the understanding of name? Well, name is the word Shem. 
it has the understanding in the original Hebrew of the essence of who God is towards his creation. There's a, there's a variation in the difference between the word soul in the Hebrew and the word Shem, which is the word for name. The word soul has the understanding of who we are in reality to ourselves, the essence of who we actually are. The word name, Shem, has the understanding of who we are to those about us. The name of God is the expression of who God is to his creation. In fact, Jesus Christ is called the word of God. And the understanding of the word word is simply expression. The understanding of the word son is the understanding of the expression of the source. The source is understood in the name father. There are many that do not understand the greatness of the God that is the true and only one God, the Almighty's one, whose name is in the original Hebrew also addressed as Elohim, which basically means the Almighty's, there's a plurality in it, and yet it is one, the Almighty's one. And it is at this point that I want to describe the greatness of God to those that may have never heard or understood who God is, as well as those that are Christians that really have a very limited understanding. This is in order to more enter in to understanding this psalm and enter into the worship that we should be experiencing in our, in our lives <clears throat> as those that have been brought forth anew by the Spirit of God to be his sons. The expression of who he is, as I said, the word son means expression. And to be as his sons, heirs. So this understanding of the Almighty's one. There are many that believe that Christians, when they use the word Trinity, are talking about three gods. That we believe in three gods, which is the farthest from the truth. As it says in the word of God, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. People believe that the Trinity is a complicated thing to explain. It is for those that would explain it in a way that is out of mere natural understanding without revelation. But I am going to explain it here in a way that is simple to understand that I believe the Holy Spirit gave me in order to communicate the glory of God to his people. God in order to govern all dimensions of what he has created, must obviously be known in those dimensions, be in those dimensions. So what are the ultimate dimensions of existence? There are three. It is that which is beyond the time and space realm. That is a dimension of existence. It is being in the time and space realm. And it is filling all things in all dimensions. Three things. God as the Father, the originator. Father speaks of originator and it also speaks of one that has had great experience, that knows the end from the beginning, that can transcend time and space because he is beyond time and space. And so for God to be able to govern beyond the time and space realm, he is within that realm as personage. If he was not personage and if he wasn't there, he wouldn't be governing and he would not be God. But God, as the father and personage, governs beyond 
is in government, the government of God beyond the time and space realm is known as God, the originator, God the Father. Now, God the originator, the Father that is beyond the time and space realm, expresses the, his being in love, in creativity to bring forth creation. And so there's the time and space realm. And in the time and space realm, God is also needed to be in government in order to communicate with his creation, in order to experience also with his creation. <clears throat> and as such, he is expressed as the originator into the time and space realm. So God is also in personage within the time and space realm as the expression of the originator, the Father, into the time and space realm. So the expression of God, the Father, is the Son. The word Son basically means expression, expression of the Father. The Son is the full expression of the Father into his creation, the time and space realm. It says that clearly in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, that the Son is the full expression of the Father. And so we have God in government over his creation in, full ex in his one and only full expression, which is his Son, who came in the center of history, Jesus Christ. And then God, to truly be the Almighty's one over all, must also govern in personage by filling all things everywhere at the same time with his presence. And since he created all things, he is attached with his total omniscience, his total knowledge and presence to every particle of existence that he has created. And this has also been very strongly confirmed by the particle physics that has been discovered. Many people do not know that there was a big project that went on that cost between 10 and $16 billion, depending on which article you happen to read, over a period of 16 years. This was a particle of physics project, which is the biggest project in the world that has ever been taken on. And it might seem like I'm being sidetracked to talk about this a bit, but it would be fine to share it a bit. Over 60,000 scientists from all over the world are still, were involved in the building of this project, and I believe there's still around that number involved in this. What was their purpose in this project? It was to discover what is called the God particle, also known as the Higgs boson. It involves a large tunnel deep under the earth. I believe it's, uh, I forget exactly, it's hundreds of feet under the earth. That's about 25 kilometers in circumference with enormous chambers, four really large chambers that are bigger than a three-story enormous wide building and heavier than the Eiffel Tower. With, and I can't go into it. These chambers have magnetism that is thousands of times greater than the Earth. Temperatures that are colder, believed to be even colder than outer space, minus 273 Celsius, with tons of highly sophisticated cameras. Then they shoot particles, protons, in opposite directions to collide in these chambers. At very slightly under the speed of light. Of course, it's twice the speed of light when they collide. And the collisions, there's over a billion collisions a second, out of which a million are sorted out by the computers for analysis every second when they do collide them. The temperatures from these collisions is 100,000 times greater than the internal heat of the sun. And they look at these pictures that are taken and analyze them with computers that have been set up around the world. A very enormous computer system. In fact, it's been also mentioned that the Internet started this way from other colliders that were being used years earlier. 
And on July the 12th, I believe it is, of 2012, they discovered the God particle. They wondered what was holding the atom together, all of these different conjugations or or, um, bunches of energy that make up the atom, and they discovered that behind it there was the God particle. And I heard one physicist that's not even a believer, I believe Ron Pearson on the internet on YouTube, talking about how all of these mathematical equations come together. This was before they discovered it, by the way. And he said, he's concluded that there is attached to every particle of existence what, from all of his mathematical analysis, is like the neurons in a brain attached to every particle of existence. And that's all I'm going to share about that for now. And so God, by his Holy Spirit, is creative in personage and can be everywhere at the same time in such activity as well as holding all things together. His intellect is attached to every particle of existence. For it is, therefore, it is nothing for God to raise the dead, to bring back those things that have degraded to total dust. And so we understand one true God that is beyond time and space as the Father, that is expressed into time and space as the Son, and that is filling all things in all dimensions as as the Holy Spirit of God that has the essence of the Father and the Son in omnipresence. And in this relationship of the one true almighty God, there must be also the understanding that God is love. That he is ultimately worthy of worship because of who he is. It is very clearly described from the book of Genesis to Revelations, the character of the being of God, which basically in essence is an ultimate perfection of love. And I briefly want to share about that here. God and his ultimate perfection of love. What is that? This is not just some emotional feeling. This is a total free choice of being that is always choosing the highest lasting good over any more immediate choice that would be less and therefore would contain an element of corruption or destruction in it. The moment we choose something less than our highest good, obviously there's an element there that will result in loss to us and therefore corruption In fact, even in science, there are two well-known laws that are irrefutable and are plainly reserved in the whole of the universe that we observe. The first is the law. They are the first and second laws of thermodynamics. The first law says basically this, that matter can't be destroyed. It may be changed into, you know, a hot blazing heat as opposed to a solid... uh, metal or whatever, but it is always existing in one form or another. And the second law says that anything left on its own will always go in the direction of disorder to greater chaos until there is total unavailability of energy, total chaos, total meaninglessness. Yet here we are in a highly designed universe. We should, in the infinite of past, have then therefore come to complete chaos. But here we are as a contradiction with a highly ordered creation, which points towards an ultimate life source. And this has been now strongly confirmed by particle physics. And we hear many testimonies of people, my site at ultimatemeaning.com, you can watch videos of people that were atheists, that strongly opposed the truth died and experienced a dimension far more real than this physical dimension. Experienced hell. And because God knew what was in their heart and that they were open to truth, experienced the opportunity to 
to come to the truth and God showed mercy to them and also showed them heaven. And they came back totally converted people even though they were clinically known to be dead by the doctors. And there are many, many cases of this, of people describing this realm that is far more real than this physical realm. And the mathematics of the particle physics points this out. There's what's called the D world, and it has many substratum worlds. The mathematics points towards an ultimate intelligent source in all of this. I have a book coming out that will be describing many of these things. And so we have God as love. Love is a choice that is greater than feeling, that is free and chooses the highest lasting good. That is who God is. As such, there is absolute purity and integrity in God's love. As such, God is a blazing fire of judgment against the slightest word, thought, or deed, or anything that would be contrary to his love. And if he was not, he would be condoning what is corrupt and destructive, and therefore would have allowed corruption in him, which would cause the universe to self-destruct and himself to not be eternal or everlasting and be God anymore over a period of time. But because God is the ultimate perfection of love and there is no corruption in him, because he is this God of judgment, in other words, his love, the purity of his love is the defensive aspect of his love. It is what is also known as the holiness of God. And that is the foundation from which springs the perfection of God's creativity that can create a creation that can have destiny and purpose that can enter a realm where there's no corruption, where that destiny and purpose can be ever enlarging in fulfillment, ever enlarging in creativity. That is God's ultimate purpose. Because his love is totally pure, it is the foundation for creativity that can be also inherited by creation where one can receive total fulfillment that is ever enlarging in creativity. Let me explain this if it sounds a bit uh, too scientific for you. What I am sharing is this, is that because God's love is so pure and so perfect, you can represent it this way, we have the negative and positive symbols in math. It's kind of a crude illustration, but a very good one. The negative represents a horizontal line, which can represent a foundation. The foundation is this perfection of love that requires judgment. It may seem like a negative, but it is necessary. Because when you create beings with their own free will, and that is necessary in order to have beings that have the capacity to worship. And because God by nature is love, he's not going to create robots. He's going to create beings that he can experience fellowship with and allow his love and creativity to be enlarged in and enlarged through those beings that he creates. But that means because they have their own free will, because they are the source of their own action, because we are our own creators of our own destiny, that there is the potential of hell and free will. But God's purpose is that we should come out of our free will to discover him and to enter into his purpose, to be partakers with him of this wonderful union of love that ever enlarges with life that is everlasting and ever-fulfilling. This was ultimately expressed on the other aspect of God's being, which comes out of this foundation and forms the plus symbol or the symbol of the cross.
It is from that foundation that can spring forth creation, which is represented in the plus symbol. The positive is that God has such a purity of love in his being that he can express a creativity and has a moral capacity so great that he can the require the judgment he requires he can absorb upon himself because his love is so pure and so great that he can actually become a perfect atoning sacrifice for our sin and rebellion against God. He has the moral capacity within his being to humble himself more than you, a mere creature, and suffer more than you, a mere creature, in order to take your sin upon himself and absorb it and conquer it. And he did that in Jesus Christ, his one and only true expression, which is God manifest in this time and space realm in a physical body. It is through the first man, Adam, that we sin. And we experienced, because we were, as it were, in Adam, since we came out of Adam as the human race, we have an inherited a tendency towards making choices that are warped in the deception of self-worship in the place of God. Through the indirect temptation from the things that we are exposed to in the created realm. And God allowed it that way, even in placing the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the garden. In my book, I go into great understanding and detail about all of these things. I don't have time for this message to get into such things. But what I want to share here is this. Is that when we choose, because we are the creators of our own destiny, the source of our own action and therefore self-responsible, we cannot blame God for our sin against God. The devil cannot blame God for his rebellion against God, for he is the source of his own action, for he is created with the capacity to love his own free will. The difference is he went against the direct blessing of God's love and presence and glory and was exposed to it, whereas we were tempted and not exposed to the fullness of that. But let's get to the point here. What I'm trying to point out is this, is that when Jesus Christ came into this world, he was tempted in all points as we are, and yet without sin. Because he had, being God and as God, such a union with God. That he, as it were, in his obedience to God the Father, took the first man, Adam, and as it were, carried him to the cross and nailed him on the cross, representing us also as an individual and as the human race being nailed onto that cross. And he is described as the second Adam that conquered the first man, Adam, and absorbed our sin upon himself by proving that he is perfectly pure and therefore can be a sacrifice for our sins. And he took the judgment of God the Father upon him and absorbed it through pouring out the life of his blood on the cross and the breaking of his body so that we could ask God to cleanse us from all our sins and make our soul as white as snow, our spirit and soul as white as snow, and forgive us so that we could be reconciled to God if we repent and receive his mercy. Yes, even before the world was created, there was this, such a moral per, per, perfection in God and also acknowledged by his creation that he had the moral capacity to become a perfect atoning sacrifice. I'm not saying that the angels necessarily knew all of that, but I do believe that the people from the time of Adam and Eve, many of them saw it, whether by revelation or by revelation and intellect, 
or some subconsciously by, and with revelation. But many saw it because it is very clear from the Old Testament that they knew that they had to offer an innocent lamb and other such animals for their sin and that it represented their sin being placed on the animal. But they make it, it's very clear throughout the scripture in the Old Testament that the source of forgiveness is not in the animal, it is in God. It is very clear that only God can forgive sin. And there are other verses that say that the animal can't cleanse our soul in the Old Testament. In essence, it's saying that. It's saying, shall I give my children for the sin of my soul? No, that won't satisfy. Shall I give my own body? No, that won't satisfy. And then it describes very clearly that God will provide. A body hast thou prepared me, it says. Lo, I come in the volume of the book it is written of me to do thy will. And so it very clearly implies that there's a suffering Messiah. Even the believers in the time of Christ, the Pharisees and others, the Essenes and others believed that there was a suffering Messiah as well as a reigning Messiah. They didn't realize he'd be one and the same. So what I'm pointing out here is this. Is that the two aspects of the being of God are the utter purity of his love that is a blazing fire of judgment against the slightest that is contrary, out of which springs the capacity of such creative expression of love to the degree of being able to show mercy to his creation by becoming a perfect atoning sacrifice so that we can become part of his corporate bride that will rule forever with him throughout the universe breaking against all the laws of thermodynamics of corruption the second law of thermodynamics anything left on its own apart from God definitely goes in the direction of disorder as is observed in the whole of the known universe. And in this psalm here, now that I have described the greatness of God, it is within this greatness of the being of God because he has such purity that he can contain unlimited power and unlimited life without being corrupted by it. And that is obviously indicative that he is also the very source of life and of power without limit that is contained in ultimate goodness. It has no destructiveness in it. It is total, pure goodness, which is the expression of love and creativity that has no corruption in it. And so in this psalm, there is the description of the greatness of God. It says in verse 7, they shall, utter, they shall abundantly utter the memory of thy great goodness and shall sing of thy righteousness. It emphasizes the Lord is gracious and full of compassion and slow to anger and of great mercy. And this is because they recognized in the being of God his power to forgive sin even before Christ came. Christ even said, whoever has learned of the Father comes to me. And there are many that learn to perceive God for who he truly was and is in his holiness, in the purity of his love, and out of which springs the greatness of his mercy to assure destiny to those in creation that choose to repent and be reconciled to God. And this message of, God, of the gospel was preached from the time of Adam and Eve, and it was even planned before the creation of the world to bring forth a corporate bride for him so that you could be forever in heaven in fellowship with God and with a family of God. And now you can experience the greatness of his mercy and love if you will truly rend your heart and turn to him and cry out for mercy and forgiveness. You will know cleansing from all of your sin and forgiveness. In this passage of scripture, it says, I want to go with the next verses in verses 10 to 12 and just 
point out what I said, wrote down here briefly. We are to speak of the glory of God's kingdom and talk of God's power in order to make known to those in darkness the mighty acts of God and the glory of his kingdom, verses 10 to 12. All thy works shall praise thee, verse 10. O Lord, and thy saints shall bless thee. They shall speak of the glory of thy kingdom and talk of thy power, brothers and sisters. When we come to gather together, we need to be caught up with the glory of who God is. And that comes out of a right perception of God that is initiated through the genuine fear of God, out of which springs this praise that I've been talking about. For it is when the eye of our heart is open to see God for who he truly is, that there is a receptivity to receive revelation of who God is. And when you see the beauty of who God is, you cannot help but want to speak of him. Him, it's like a lover seeing the beauty of his or her countenance. And all they can say is, oh, I love you so much. You're so beautiful. I love your eyes or whatever. King David said this. He said, one thing have I desired of the Lord, and that will I seek after, that I may behold the beauty of the Lord and inquire in his temple all the days of my life. And I won't go on quoting it. The ultimate beauty that is greater than any beauty, and we look at such beauty in the natural of a lover that we love or of the creation, but God, in his beauty, pale, makes that which is around us in beauty seem insignificant. Beauty comes out of wholeness. And wholeness comes out of the holiness of God, which is the purity of his love that requires judgment. The word of God says of those that are genuine believers, Be holy, for I am holy, says the Lord. And it also says without holiness, no man shall see the Lord. In order to be partakers of the holiness of God, it requires first that we come to that initial recognition of who God is, that we choose to fear God, to recognize the goodness of God that is in an ultimate purity that requires judgment because the love is so great. And out of that, to recognize that we deserve the judgment of God for the thoughts and the desires if we haven't done any deeds. I'm sure we all have, that have been against the goodness and the love of God. That we humble ourselves and cry out and say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Christ described it this way. He said there were some Pharisees that were thanking God for how godly they were and that they fasted and others didn't and that they gave of their goods and others didn't. And then he said there was a publican which was looked at and despised by the nation of Israel as betrayers that was collecting taxes for the Roman government. And the publican put his face in the earth and beat his breast and cried out and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And he continued to beat his breasts many a time and say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And then he was at peace before God. And Christ said, that man was truly justified before God unlike the Pharisees. And to be receptive of who God is involves the choice to recognize God. It's the choice to fear God that is the choice to recognize God aright. It is a choice from the heart that causes a deep turning in the heart that cries out and causes a, an undoing of the veil of the heart so that we can begin to see the beauty of who God is and begin to enter out of that great humiliation of awe that births honesty and births humility and thus repentance out of that to come forth 
revelation out of which comes the seeing the glory of God so that one is filled with praise to praise God. Whether one has the feeling or not, one shall still praise God because they recognize in their heart, even when they don't have the feeling and the revelation, who God is. And in this passage, it says to make known to the sons of men. That is the purpose of speaking of the glory of the kingdom of God and talking of his power as I am at this moment. It is to make known to the sons of men the mighty acts and the glorious majesty of his kingdom. You see, God's kingdom, as it says in verse 13, thy kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and thy dominion endureth throughout all generations. The reason God's kingdom is an everlasting kingdom is because of who God is. There is no corruption. There is no principle of corruption in God. His governance is without corruption, and therefore the kingdom can ever expand in greater and greater enlargements of creative expression that we can also be partakers with forever without end in fellowship with God. This is such a glorious hope. It is worth it all. It is worth being tortured to death. It is worth going through martyrdom to come out the other side, to be partakers with our Creator who's allowed us to be tried and tested in this life, that we might be purified into conformity to His holiness, to hate what He hates and to love what He loves, which is to be in conformity to His being of love that contains this integrity that requires judgment but can be transcendent in creativity to assure mercy to creation. And if God could not assure mercy and destiny to creation that repents and receives him, it would imply that he was less than perfect and not God. But how wonderful to know that there is ultimate destiny and purpose that you can have and a satisfaction in your inner being of reality by the indwelling of God that can come into your inner being when you repent and make Jesus Christ the Lord and Savior of your life. I will just briefly close this message soon. Verses 13 to 17, we are to recognize God as the life source and satisfaction of all living things and that God is holy and righteous in all his ways. That's basically what's being described in verses 13 to 17. Thy kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. I've already mentioned that. The Lord upholdeth all that fall and raiseth up all those that be bowed down. The eyes of all wait upon thee, and thou givest them their meat in due season. He is our life source. The reason God is the source of life is because he is love. For it is the quality of his being of love that contains unlimited life that cannot be dissipated because it has no corruption in it. God is filled. Thou openest thy hand and, and, and satisfyest Satisfy us the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and holy in his all, all his works. We acknowledge the perfection of God in all his works. <clears throat> and then lastly, in verses 18 to 21, I say this. We are to recognize that the Lord is close to all that call upon him in truth and hears and fulfills the desire of those that fear him so that they are saved. Yes, it says in verse 18, the Lord is nigh unto all them that call upon him, to all that call upon him in truth. There are many people that can call unto a false god, that have an idolatrous perception of God as some dictator that requires submission and that we are to be like robots that have no perception of the ultimate moral perfection of the being of God in love. 
but it's those that truly turn with the depths of their heart and call from the depths of their being upon God with a true heart that God comes nigh to. There are many people that believe they're born again and are not because they've been taught a false gospel that God just wants you to say a little prayer. But if you don't mean that prayer sincerely from your heart and your real motive is just because you want to be part of a, a group that you can find identity in or whatever, then you're not calling upon him untruth. If you believe that God can receive you and you can still live in sin, then you've not really come to God. For Christ said, whoever comes to me, I will not cast out. But you're not coming to him if you don't have repentance in your heart. So I qualify the statement when people and pastors say, you can come just as you are. Yes, if you're coming just as you are with repentance to cast off those things in you that are not of God doesn't mean you're made perfect overnight. It means there's a heart that is repentant so that you repent of all sin. So God will be nigh unto those that truly call on him. And the word believe in the New Testament is the word pistis, which means persuasion. It is a strong persuasion, and that persuasion of belief results in action because it's a persuasion that comes out of recognizing, making a choice to recognize God for who he is so that there's a true turning from the heart of genuine belief or moral persuasion, which is what that word means. He will fulfill the desire, verse 19, of them that fear him. We are to grow in the fear of God. We are to grow in choosing to recognize God for who he is and reciprocate that recognition of God by revelation out of that choice that is a true turning from the heart. And as we do, we will delight in God as the source of our fulfillment and recognize there is in that choice to fear God the recognition that he alone is the source of our satisfaction and our fulfillment. For it says, they that fear the Lord shall not want any good thing because the genuine fear of God recognizes that their wants are not fulfilled in the temporary things of this world, no matter how beautiful or fulfilling they may seem. But in God, who is the very source of fulfillment of reality, which can only satisfy the very source of wholeness out of which springs ultimate beauty that is everlasting and fulfilling. And so... He will fulfill the desires of those that so recognize him and reciprocate that recognition in their lives so that they are not motivated by those things in the world. Jonah, in the book of Jonah, it says, they that observe lying vanities forsake their own mercy. If we are to receive the mercy and the goodness of God so that we are saved, we must choose to fear God to allow that deep turning to be birthed in our heart that reciprocates who God is in his holiness, in his mercy, out of which springs his grace and favor towards us in love. He is jealous with a love for us. He wants us to be part of his corporate bride, and he has great love for every individual that is part of that corporate bride. He has great love for his corporate bride. And the Lord preserveth all them that love him. And he will preserve those that truly love him. Even if they are martyred and tortured to death, they are fully preserved. They will be raised from the dead. They will enter into the presence of God immediately. Their body, their soul is separated from their body. And they will return with their resurrection body to rule and reign with him in this world forever for a thousand years if we suffer with him and forever in the corporate bride of Christ. And so we have what is involved in genuine praise and worship which God inhabits. 
God is calling us as his people to enter into this in our meetings by humbling ourselves when we start our service and getting on our faces and learning to wait on God until all of our own self-initiations of presumption and pride and lightheartedness cease and we enter into a deep awe of who God is, a deep humbling, a deep receptivity out of that humility to the grace of God from which will rise forth genuine praise, genuine prophecy, genuine declarations out of the Spirit of God that will cause others to see the glory of God and you as a corporate body locally to conquer your community and your nation for God. When the pastors allow the body to express the gifts of their spirit and repent of control, when we repent of being denominational, God doesn't want a spot or wrinkle or blemish. He's looking for a bride that is spotless, and that's the ones he's coming for. So we still want to be denominational and only receive certain ones. We have not repented. We need to repent, come to the place of being open to the whole counsel of God so that he can inhabit us because we come into a true unity with him and with one another. Thank you for listening to this message and may God bless you all.